You pour out your grace and your presence in our lives through the work of your Spirit. And as the Spirit works, we see fruit. We do see fruit. But we long to see more. And so we need more of your Spirit active in our lives. And so to that end, would you open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning? For it's in the name of your Son that we do ask. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in the last week of a series that uh, we've been in since the second week in July, uh, looking at what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Over the last uh, nine or ten weeks, we've looked at the various ways that our character as followers of Jesus is continually and shaped and molded by the Holy Spirit its work in us. And as we, as we grow in our Christian walk, what happens is that we become more and more like Jesus. And the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, two verses that we've been camping out on in this series, uh, the fruit of the Spirit really reflects what it looks like to become more and more like Jesus in a lot of different ways. Th- things like love and joy and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. We've had sermons on all of these fruit of the Spirit over the last couple of months, and today we're wrapping up with the last one we see on the list, which is self-control. Now, uh, whenever we think of the word self-control, it's usually in the context of keeping ourselves from something tempting. Like I did a, a Google image search of self-control, and the most popular image I saw was like, you know, like a frustrated kid or adult staring at a cupcake or, or donut or, or ice cream or something like that. And that's really how we think of self-control. It's keeping ourselves away from temptation. That junk food, whatever it is, is baiting us. But we use self-control to not give in. We, we exhibit self-control and we have the, the strength of character, the strength of will to say no to things that aren't good for us in the long term. But what's really interesting about self-control is how, how it's often a contrary value to what many people live with as their primary goal in life. And that is the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of comfort. Uh, Paul Bloom is a psychologist from Yale, and he wrote an article about this. And in the opening line of the article, this is what he says. He says, the simplest theory of human nature is hedonism. We pursue pleasure and comfort. Suffering and pain are by their very nature to be avoided. He says, the spirit of this view is nicely captured in the epic of Gilgamesh, Let your belly be full, enjoy yourself always by day and by night, make merry each day, dance and play day and night, for such is the destiny of men. And also, he says, by the Canadian rock band Trooper, we're here for a good time, not a long time, so have a good time, the sun can't shine every day. According to Bloom, the average person wants to have the most pleasure and comfort they can get, and they want to avoid the most suffering and pain they can. And and as people live their lives with pleasure and comfort as their core value, they'll do whatever it takes to to make pleasure and comfort a reality. But how does 
How does what Bloom calls the simplest theory of human nature intersect with Christianity? Is pleasure and comfort, is that really the thing, the core value that we are to pursue in our lives? Or is there actually something better than that? Well, as you know, there's a guy in the Bible named Solomon. He was the son of King David. And, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And in it, he describes this kind of life of that pursuit. And in chapter 2, what he does is he reflects on everything that the world offered him that he took as a younger man. Things like gold and silver, wine and vineyards, relationships and sex. And look at how he describes that pursuit in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 10. This is what Solomon writes. He's writing this at the end of his life as an older guy. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. So pretty much what he says is, if I saw it, I took it. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil or all my work, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon saw his lifetime pursuit of pleasure and comfort as meaninglessness in comparison to a self-controlled life of living for God and His glory. And this morning, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to see how this fruit of the Spirit of self-control, really uh, all-encompassing with the other fruit of the Spirit we've already seen, how it moves us towards greater joy than any earthly comforts could ever provide us. Now, the, the Greek word for self-control that we see here in, 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 this, in this Galatians 5 list of the fruit of the Spirit, what it really conveys, the, the, the heart, the meaning of the word, is really the ability to pursue the important over the urgent, rather than to be subject to always just being impulsive and, and uncontrolled. You see, self-control is actually more than just saying no to certain things. I mean, similar to that picture of, of people being tempted by food, we can think, think that self-control is only resisting the temptation. But that's actually an incomplete view. Because if that's all self-control is, then what we're left thinking all day is, don't eat the donut, right? Don't do that thing. Don't think that. But, but there's another half of self-control, and that's after resisting something tempting that we pursue something good. It's saying yes to something better and saying no to that other thing. Really, what I think the scriptures uh, teach us is that self-control is having the strength of character to pursue godliness instead of sin. Sin, of course, is any time we, we fail to reflect God's image. And we do that in our, in our nature, we do that in our attitudes, we do that with our actions. Whenever we do something or think something or say something that doesn't reflect God in his goodness, that is a sinful thing. Well, if that is what sin is, then, then, then what's the opposite? What's the opposite of not reflecting God's image? Well, it would be reflecting him clearly. And that's what is described as godliness. And any time that we succeed in reflecting God's character in our nature, with our attitudes or our actions, that, that's what we pursue. That's a good thing. That's godliness. 
and self-control that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's what he wants to move us towards. He moves us toward godliness. He moves us toward people seeing God in how we live and how we love. Now, last week we, we talked about our hearts and we talked about it as being, you know, the central animating center of all that we do. It's, it's, it's like the, the combination of everything that makes us who we are. It's, it, you know, it's our minds, our intellect, our emotions, our affections. It's what defines us and directs us. And Jesus talked about our hearts often. And on one occasion, he told the disciples what comes, uh, what comes from the heart. It, it, this, and, and this is Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. This is what Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Now what Jesus says here is actually in response to a question that the disciples had asked him a, a few verses earlier. Some of the Pharisees were very offended by something that Jesus said. This was kind of par for the course. The Pharisees were, were often offended by the things that Jesus said. But what Jesus said was that, that what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Or what makes them unclean, not what goes in. And the Pharisees were very offended by this. And they were offended because they really cared about what went in, what they ate. And and that came from their understanding of the law. They prided themselves uh, on not eating, eating certain things in adherence to the Jewish law. And so the disciples pulled Jesus aside and they're like, Jesus, do you know how offended the Pharisees were when you just said that? And Jesus is like, okay, guys, this is what I'm getting at. And he explains his teaching to them. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? And the Greek here is actually expelled into the latrine. So there's no confusion or misunderstanding of what Jesus is explicitly saying. And don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's like, it's the heart. It's what's in you. That is where the evil comes from. It's from our heart. It's from our very nature. It's not from outside of us. And yes, while things that we see and that we listen to and that we engage uh, with impact our heart, it's really from within us that these things take root because of our sin nature. See, every part of us is touched by and impacted by sin. What we strive for, what we daydream about our countenance, our attitude, and we need the Spirit's help when it comes to self-control with our hearts. And I love how Paul uh, encouraged the Philippians in, in this, in his letter to them. This is what, 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 uh, what he says at the end of Philippians in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I particularly like how the NASB um, renders that last phrase. Paul says, dwell on these things. I love that word dwell. I mean, like what comes to, to, to your mind when you hear the word dwell? You know, for me, the picture is just sitting down and just, just to rest and to consider something for all that it has. And the word for dwell in this passage can be also be translated to, to find valuable, to treasure. And when our lives are marked by self-control, there are better things that we treasure. 
better things that we find valuable. They're, 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 they're the things that we strive for, the things that, that mark our attitudes, our emotions, our thoughts. They're the things that we dwell on. And this verse tells us what those things are, things that are true and honorable and just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, praiseworthy. And so as we pursue self-control, when it comes to our hearts and as the Spirit makes us more self-controlled, what we think about, they, they become things that reflect God and His goodness. And they, and they are things that actually become more attractive to us. That is, we, we, we don't white-knuckle our way into thinking about these things or letting our lives be marked by these things. No, they look better to us because they are better, because the Spirit makes them better to us. And one of the reasons self-control is so important when it comes to our hearts is, is because it's, it is out of the well, the overflow of our hearts, that we then live our lives. And we're called to live self-controlled in how we live, in what we do. And we've been looking in depth over, over these weeks at this passage where the, the fruit of the Spirit comes from, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But right before that, we find verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see, Paul here is, is writing to the church in Galatia about two drivers behind the choices that we make in our lives. We've got the flesh and we have the spirit. And the flesh is, is that old sinful person you used to be that's kind of lingering, that's still kind of hanging on. But the spirit is God living in you, making you more like Jesus. And the language in this passage, don't miss it, it's talking about how we live. It's talking about our actions. Look at the verbs, walk by the spirit. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, our lives of self-control are marked by the decisions we make to follow Jesus every single day, to honor him with our lives, with our actions. And the desires of the flesh that Paul refers to here draws immediately to the horrible list of, of the works of the flesh that begin, he begins to enumerate in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, probably the main thing, but certainly not the only thing that Paul has in mind in mind is, is regards of, of what needs to, to we what we need to control to, to demonstrate self-control is in the area of our sexual desires. I mean, it's not by accident that his, that his list of the works of the flesh begins with sexual immorality. And in several other places in his writings, Paul includes sexual sin as behavior that Christians should put aside altogether. This is certainly an important area where self-control is needed. And if we could have asked Paul for examples from Scripture, I think he might have mentioned Joseph. 
Many of you know the story of Joseph. Joseph had been uh, put in charge of all the affairs of his master, Potiphar, in Egypt. And he rose to prominence and success, through his, his, though he was still technically a slave. But he had reached the point where many men in his position, in the context of that day, felt free to take sexual liberties as their due reward. And that temptation came his way, but not with a slave girl, but with Potiphar's wife. And, 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 and this is Genesis uh, 39. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he, she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her and, be with her and to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. In this story, we see not only Joseph's self-control, but also the powerful reasons he gives for it. The first is that he wasn't willing to break the trust of his master. I mean, for, for that matter, he could also stand as the, the, the neon example of faithfulness as well. But even more, he was not willing to sin against God. And the author of Genesis tells us again and again that, that God was with Joseph in all of the ups and downs of his life. And so we might suggest that the, the fruit of the Spirit is being modeled by Joseph uh, at this point for his self-control. It wasn't, wasn't just a matter of his own strength, but his awareness of God in his life. And as a striking counterexample, we might think then of the much sadder story of David. I mean, his lack of self-control after seeing Bathsheba bathing led him not only into adultery, but also into the, the deepening morass of deception and even murder. And even though he repented and experienced God's forgiveness, his loss of personal self-control meant that he also lost moral control over his own family, especially two of his sons, Amnon and, and Absalom, and and, and, and the absolute disaster that their lives ended in. And it goes without saying that the temptation to sexual activity and relations outside of the, the good context God provided for sex, namely only within the marriage bond between one woman and one man, it remains a very strong and powerful enemy to any of us at any age. And we need to recognize what a dangerous enemy it is, whether in actual practice or even just in the world of our thoughts and imaginations, be it through pornography or whatever else. And listen, the, 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 the breathtaking scale of human suffering caused by our uncontrolled lusts and sexual rebellion and anarchy is beyond imagination. And so Paul takes a strongly countercultural stance when he tells Christians that they must have nothing to do with such practices, ever. And the only way to do that is through the spirit-empowered exercise of self-control. But, but, you know, perhaps we've, we've, we've reached a place um, in our lives 
where we think that that particular form of temptation, that is sexual immorality, is, is, is well under control. Maybe our circumstances in life are, are very unlikely to provide either the temptation or the opportunity to fall into sexual sin. Well, apart from the warning that if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall, Paul's list in, in Galatians 5 reminds us that the flesh, our fallen human nature, has plenty of other desires and tendencies, bad habits, traps, and temptations for us to fall into if we don't exercise self-control with the help of the Spirit. What about your temper? Are you in control of your temper? You see, Paul also includes fits of, of anger in his list. What about your appetites? Are they under control? I mean, I mean we're, we're to enjoy the good food and drink that God provides as a blessing, which is to be received with thanksgiving, but drunkenness and gluttony are among the works of the flesh that the Bible condemns. Are you in control of your attitude to, towards others? When others do well and are praised or, or get what you would like for yourself, can you control the urge to jealousy and envy and selfish ambition? Are you in control of what is perhaps the the hardest thing of all to exercise control over, your tongue. Now, Paul doesn't list this specifically here, but, but, but he would certainly uh, agree with the, way, with, with the way James stresses the, the damage the tongue can do and, and, and the need to control it severely. James 3, verse 3, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. But every kind of beast and bird or of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This should not be, James says, but sadly it often is. And a lack of self-control in the use of our tongue is sadly a huge cause of damage to Christian witness and fellowship. While we see through, throughout Scripture how lack of self-control with our words can often hurt and, and, and bring down, we can also see how our words can also bring life and heal. Uh, for instance, in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul writes to, to the, the Christians in, in, in Ephesus and about what their new lives in Christ should be marked by, and he says a lot of things about their speech. Look at what he says in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25, he says, therefore, having put away falsehoods, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Verse 26, let no corrupting talk come from your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is a, a great picture of how a Christian, a person who is led by the Spirit of God in self-control speaks to other people. They don't lie. They speak the truth. They avoid foul language. They, they, they choose to say things that build up. Their language, instead of being marked by bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander, maybe that's what it used to be, now is marked by kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And, and I love how Paul wraps it all up by saying words like that actually do something for a person. This is in, in verse 29. Words like that give grace to those who hear. In other words, with our words, we have the opportunity to show God's grace, to bestow God's grace to others. And so Paul has kind of come full circle in his betrayal um, here of the, the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, he began uh, with love, um, which is a quality that directs our thoughts and our actions towards others. And then he ends with self-control, which is a quality that directs our thoughts and our actions inward toward ourselves for our, our own good and for the good of others. And probably Paul has in mind that unless we exercise this necessary practice of self-control and live in a self-disciplined way, we will likely not, we're likely not to bear the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And so I want us to think about ourselves when it comes to this fruit of the Spirit. Where do you lack self-control? Where are you growing in self-control? Is it in your heart? Is it in your actions, in your words? For me, I'm the type of person that I need diagnostic questions uh, because if I just answer those questions and say, hmm, kind of, you know, sure, yeah, I could, I could grow more. But for me, I really need specificity. I need, I need some self-diagnostic questions to help me consider this in my own life. First, let's just think about our hearts. What drives your life? What do you daydream about? What are your thoughts and your emotions and your attitudes? What are they shaping you into? Who, who are you becoming? Do you dwell on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, praiseworthy? Think about our words. Is your speech reflected by gossip, slander, bitterness toward others? Or do your words bring grace to other people? Does your speech build up or tear down? Does your speech reflect the truth of God and his goodness? And what about our actions? Do you use your sexuality only in the framework designed by God? Are there other, or are there other ways that, that you are carrying out the desires of the flesh? What would it look like for you to walk by the Spirit instead? Now, as we draw this series to, to a close, I readily admit, especially if we ask these kind of probing questions of ourselves and take stock and inventory of our lives, that it could be quite easy for us to get discouraged by what we might perceive as a lack of fruit in our lives. 
And so let me just remind you that, that, that we can take confidence in knowing that the Spirit of God is at work in us. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, this is happening to you. Fruit is growing, maybe slowly, maybe imperceptibly at times, but the Spirit is doing His work in your life. But listen, while we can be assured that the fruit of the Spirit is growing in our lives, and it's important to understand that the fruit of the Spirit is indeed, by the way, one fruit. It's not a, a buffet of fruit this is, that is, you know, one, where one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit mustn't be held in isolation against any of the others. No, we are to grow in the complex of the whole fruit of the Spirit, all nine of these characteristics. But while it's important to have the confident assurance that the Holy Spirit is producing this in our lives, it's also important for us to see that we are far more in need of growth in the, whole, in the fruit of the Spirit than we might think. In fact, when we honestly examine our lives and stop looking maybe at our natural gifting, as if, that, like, like as if that's like a sign that we are Christ-like, or stop looking at our natural strength as a sign that we are Christ-like, but challenge ourselves to look at the true nature, unity, and characteristics of the Spirit, we have a, a much deeper sense of how we lack these things. And so to that end, I, I want to ask one final question as we draw this series to a close. And, and that is simply this. How, yeah, the Spirit does this work, but how can the fruit of the Spirit take even deeper root in our hearts and be produced even more in our lives? And you know, in Galatians 5, at the end of Galatians 5, Paul supplies the answer. He gives the secret to it all. In verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But then after contrasting the works of the flesh over against the fruit of the Spirit, Paul then says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Look at what he says here in these, in these verses. First, we need to remember as he says in verse 24, that we belong to Christ Jesus. And all that is his is ours. And so understand that, that, that our approval and welcome from the Father rests not on our character or actions, but on his. Not on the fruit that is on display in our lives, but on display in his. And so what this does is it frees us. It frees us to, to acknowledge that we have given up ground to the flesh in many areas of our lives. And we're free to confess that we haven't sought to keep in step with the Spirit. And we're also free to realize where we, haven't, where we have often confused our, our, our natural gifting or, or character traits with the fruit of the Spirit. But then second, because we belong to Christ... He says, we have crucified the flesh. That is the old sinful nature with its passions and desires. And crucifying the flesh is really what Tim Keller calls it, the identification and dismantling of our idols. It means, that, it means putting an end to the ruling and attractive power that idols have in our lives and, 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 and in so doing, destroying their ability to agitate or inflame our thoughts and desires. 
In other words, crucifying the flesh is about strangling sin at its motivational heart level rather than simply setting ourselves against sin at a behavioral level. You see, real change in our lives can't really take place without us first discerning the particular idols and desires that come from our individual sin nature within us. In other words, we have to look first at our hearts and its affections before we look at our hands and their actions. And so we have to ask ourselves, not just what we do wrong, but why do we do it wrong? You see, because we disobey God in order to get something that we feel we must have. It's again what, what Keller calls an over-desire. We must have it. Why must we have it? Well, it is because it is, because it is something that, that we have come to believe will authenticate us or validate us. It's something that we believe will give us uh, identity or a purpose. And to crucify the flesh is to say, Lord, my heart thinks that I must have this. Otherwise, I have no value. But to think and feel and live like this is to forget what I mean to you, how you see me in Christ. And so by your spirit, I will reflect on your love for me in him. And this thing loses its attractive power in my soul. And so third and final, as Paul says in verse 25, we need to live by the spirit. We need to keep in step with the spirit. And you see, this is, a, this is a positive process. It's not simply giving things up, and it's, it's an active process. It's, not, it's, it's something that we do, and, and, and something more than simply uh, obedience, although it is not less than simple obedience. You see, the spirit that lives within us is a living person who glorifies and magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And so once we specifically discover and identify that particular false belief of our flesh which leads us into sin, we replace them with Christ. And this isn't some, just some simple intellectual exercise. No, we worship Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit who glories in and magnifies the work of Jesus, adoring him until our hearts find him more beautiful than the object that we felt we had to have. And as we do that, we will put to death our old flesh nature. And in doing that, we will thereby be clearing room for the fruit of the Spirit to grow, and we will find that fruit increasingly growing, changing us more and more into the people that we long to be and that God has designed and desires us to be. Let's pray. God, I do first want to thank you that you, you do this in us. God, as I think about my own life, how often I'm tempted to look at things that would provide me pleasure today, but not eternally. God, how often I need self-control to remember that you are so much better That life in you, joy in you is better. God, as we think about this series, as we think about the fruit of the Spirit, ways that, that what we, we may be in need of the Spirit's work to grow us, God, I pray that we can, we can have peace, knowing that we are secure in your hand, that you're a good Father who loves us, that, that promises to make us 
more like Jesus as we grow. And God, I pray that, that we can come alongside you in that effort, that we can live self-controlled, godly, and upright lives in this age and point to our good Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we do pray and ask this. Amen. Amen.